When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome back, fellow optimists. It's Sofia Tapia here again, your host on the Future Positive Podcast, a podcast from XPRIZE that aims to bring you the most future-forward topics from the world's brightest minds. If you're new to Future Positive, in each episode, you'll hear from world leaders, creators, entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers who are paving the way for innovation on and off this planet we call home. In 2015, XPRIZE launched the NRG COSIA Carbon XPRIZE, a $20 million competition to jumpstart the carbon tech economy and tackle global warming. Last Monday, April 19th, the winners were revealed in an online event hosted by the Wired Brand Lab. If you missed it, fear not, we have a treat for you. Played in its full live, unedited glory, we join Wired editor Megan Greenwell hosting the digital reveal of the two NRG Cosia Carbon X Prize winners, who then take questions from the live audience. So sit tight, put your phone on silent, and get ready to take off. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in. Um, I'm Megan Greenwell, the editor of Wired.com, and I'm so, so excited to be here with Jennifer Wagner president of Carbon Cure Technologies, and Gaurav Sant, the team lead for UCLA Carbon Build and an engineering professor at UCLA's Samueli's School of Engineering. Congratulations to you both. Um, Thank you. We'll, Thank you. We'll save a lot of time for audience questions toward the end of the panel. I know there are a bunch of people here, so please drop all of your questions for Jennifer and Gaurav into the Q&A tool on your screen. Um, so, Jennifer, let's start with you. Just give us some basic background on Carbon Cure and the work that went into your XPRIZE entry. Yeah, thanks, Megan. So, uh, we've been um, scaling our company uh, since about 2012. And uh, what Carbon Cure has done is we've developed a, a scalable technology for concrete producers to recycle carbon dioxide into their concrete. And what was demonstrated as part of the Carbon X Prize uh, was for a specific uh, class of uh, uh, a subset of the concrete industry for reclaimed water. And this is a, a technology in our portfolio of solutions that really help fight climate change. So uh, aside from the Carbon X Prize, our technologies are being used by about 300 concrete plants around the world. Uh, and we've just reached a milestone where we've poured uh, over 1 million truckloads to construction projects. That's amazing. And Gaurav, you also work on concrete and reducing the carbon footprint of construction materials generally. Tell us about your work in your XPRIZE entry. Yeah, thanks for asking, uh, Megan. And, you know, before I go ahead, the first thing is to congratulate Jennifer and the rest of the Carbon Cure team 
Um, and to thank all of our supporters in the School of Engineering um, and at the Institute of Carbon Management and the team that's actually worked on this. So I'm a third generation civil engineer and you know I was brought to UCLA to really build a program focused on the materials of modern construction. We've looked at this for a long time and you know we understand that the production of cement that we use to produce concrete is a major carbon dioxide emitter, accounts for nearly about 10% of global carbon dioxide emissions. And what we've been really focused on is thinking about how we could take those emissions and utilize them beneficially. So the work that we started that turned into our XPRIZE win really started as an academic research project, thinking about how could we scalably utilize carbon dioxide to produce concrete. You know, we were motivated by the idea of thinking about seashells that we all think about and as we pick up as we walk on a beach, um, which make for really good cementation agents. And when we started working on this, you know, we thought it would be just a classic academic research project, but every time we thought it wouldn't work, it did, and it worked really well, and it worked as, as it got bigger and as it got larger. And, and eventually we got to the point of thinking, you know, this really makes for a great solution to transform carbon dioxide, which is an emissions waste from cement production or power generation, as what have you, and you can turn it into concrete. The, the idea of all of this is really quite simple. When we think about societal development, we're gonna pour lots of concrete going into the future. You know, there's a, there's a well-known statistic from Bill Gates which says we build effectively a new New York City every month. And we cannot really divorce societal development from the production of concrete. And we wanted to be a part of the solution, and that's that's really the common build story. Jennifer, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got interested in this problem and, and finding a solution. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a chemist by training, I'm a bit of a science nerd. Um, and uh, when I was finishing up my studies, I was doing a bit of networking and trying to to find a job that combined my three passions, which was uh, science, business, and sustainability. And uh, anyone I asked, I said, those jobs don't exist. Uh, and I, I didn't like that answer. So I, I kind of kept digging and did some networking and eventually uh, met up with our founder, uh, Rob Niven, who was who was starting Carbon Care at the time. And uh, over the last uh, decade or so, we've been scaling the business and growing the team and uh, bringing on some great investors and new partners and uh, the rest is history. Gaurav, you mentioned being from a family of engineers. You're an engineer yourself. Um, how did you go from a more traditional civil engineering path to, you know, really caring about this problem and wanting to find ways to solve it? Yeah, so, so great question, Megan. You know, I'm the third generation civil engineers in the family, which either means that, that we really like what we do or we've got really no creativity or imagination, <laughs> as it might be. Now, that said, you know, one of the things that really led into where we are today is if you think about civil engineering, right? Civil engineers have been responsible for sort of the biggest changes in our society, going from the construction of infrastructure to clean drinking water, which is sort of the single statistic that moved human lifespan by about 30 years. As we look into the future, I think it's, it's safe to admit that, that climate change is gonna be really one of the biggest issues that we face. And if you think about civil engineering, what civil engineers have been really good at doing is developing solutions that involve logistics, moving water, moving air, handling large quantities of materials. And we wanted to be a part of that solution with really thinking about, you know, different from what civil engineers have done so far, how do we become a part of solving sort of the biggest challenges that, that, that humanity faces? And, you know, this, this makes for a compelling story. We are, we are at a university, you know, where you really have the ability to think about solutions with a really blue sky approach. And these are really concepts and ideas that motivate the next generation of engineers. When you sort of take this, this summary of, of concepts and you put them together, the idea of working on concrete, something that is so so basic to our way of life, and being able to put a new spin on it is obviously something that's very compelling. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, I think 
most of us, even those of us who are pretty aware of climate change issues in general, don't think that much about the role of construction materials because it just feels like this kind of ubiquitous thing that almost blends into the background. So can you give us some background on, you had some really interesting statistics about the role construction and concrete in particular plays in this climate change crisis. Yeah, I think um, there's sort of two points to make there. One is, um, you know, uh, as Gaurav mentioned, like we're gonna be building a lot over the next few decades and most of that construction will be made with concrete. Um, and some people, for the folks uh, in the audience who, who don't know the nuances between cement and concrete, so cement, is the glue that holds the concrete together. And the cement industry is responsible for about 8% of global emissions. And so collectively, we're gonna be making a lot more concrete and a lot more cement, um, so we need to decarbonize. And so that's really the genesis for why the company was established is we wanna create scalable solutions for the concrete industry to help them transition to that low carbon economy. So I think what the X Prize has shown is that there's a new class of products that can be made uh, from waste carbon emissions. And I think um, that really goes to show, especially given that uh, Grov and, and Carbon here are, are both um, uh, bringing concrete solutions to the table is that uh, concrete really can be part of the solution to climate change. Mm -hmm. And Gaurav, I know from the academic side, you had some interesting um, research and, and interesting findings into like how big of a part of the crisis this is. Can you Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, you know, so, so the, the, the numbers are really enormous, right? And, and there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. Um, really, and I think, you know, Jennifer sort of hit on the important statistics about 8 to 10% of global emissions. But the reason that this is really a sector which is ripe for disruption is unlike things like power generation that, you know, we see will decarbonize with, with renewables and with energy storage, the production of cement is sort of hostage to itself in terms of carbon emissions. So about 65% of the emissions really come from the production of cement itself, you know, when you burn limestone. So they're not really associated with what we call process heat. So as, as the rest of the economy decarbonizes, if we don't come up with better solutions, this is a sector that starts to occupy a bigger and bigger percentage of, of the total carbon emissions, so to speak. Now, the reason that this is both an opportunity and a challenge is really as follows. It's an opportunity because it's a sector we can't get away from. But it's a challenge because it implies that we've got to do whatever we do at a low cost, but we've got to do it incredibly scalably. We've got to be able to do it around the world and, and in a manner that you know is, is abundant. And I think that's really sort of the premise of what Carbon Build was really trying to go after. We're thinking about how do we take carbon dioxide emissions just as they are, as they come out of the flue gas of a power plant or cement plant and really directly utilize them. Because as you can imagine, you know, this is this is really a business in which we cannot afford to impoverish the world to address carbon emissions. And I think Carbonville did a really good job of creating a scalable solution that's cost-effective and ready today. Grav, I'm really interested in that, that framing uh, you use, and I've seen you use this in other interviews, between, you know, a, it's a problem on one hand, but it's an opportunity. And how important that framing is for public messaging and also, you know, going about solving the problem. So can you talk a little more about the importance of that and how, how you use that in your work? Yeah, so it's a great question. And you know, when I, when I teach a class, I often ask students a question to imagine a life without concrete. And, and you know, when you think about this for about two or three minutes and it doesn't take very long, you, you basically realize that you know, the entire world around us as we think about it goes away. And I think you know, that really goes to sort of substanti substantiating the, the societal need and demand for concrete. At the same time, you know, you've got to think about this, this, this challenge that, you know, you've got a sector that we've spent about 150 years standing up, 
that we are now talking about disrupting. And, and you know, when you think about sort of these two things coming together, you see that there's both the challenge and the opportunity because you have the ability to take a sector that sort of established a really well-defined status quo and to turn it on its head. Now, you know, un unarguably, innovation is not terribly easy in, in well-established what are known as commodity sectors. But when you think about the societal need and the societal dependence for something as fundamental as concrete, you know, which we, we often don't think about, but it's literally all around us, you can see that there's some really potent messaging, not, not simply to communicate to society, but sort of communicate for the broader need around how we need to reimagine sectors that have, that have come to where they are today, but require a fundamental transformation. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, I know we have a mix of lay people and experts in, in the audience, but um, you know, I would love to hear in some more detail that the rest of us can understand like how this technology works, like what's so new and cool about it and, and how is it physically, you know, working its magic? Yeah, I think, uh, I, I mean, Gaurav touched on sort of the, one of the main problems uh, that the, the cement and concrete industries are trying to address is around uh, carbon emissions that are really tough to avoid. And that's mainly due to chemistry. Uh, but fortunately, we're actually using chemistry uh, as the solution as well. So what Carbon Cures technology does is we take uh, waste CO2 from any source and we actually bring it to the concrete plant uh, where our technologies incorporate that CO2 into the concrete production process. Uh, and there's uh, what's really important to note too uh, around scalability too is that it's, it's not just about sort of a feel-good uh, do what's right kind of uh, technology, but we're we're not only unlocking environmental benefits, but we're also unlocking economic opportunities. And I think this ties into your previous question, Megan, around the future is um, the utilization space. Um, and if you look at the other competitors uh, in the competition is that we can do a lot of things with CO2. Uh, chemistry tells us what we can and can't make, but there's actually a lot of opportunities to take that waste product that nobody wants and actually to create value from it. So we can create concrete, uh, we can create plastics and fuels and chemicals, and all of those uh, things can go into making this new sort of circular economy. Uh, and so it, it's all about just thinking about, you know, not just the environmental benefit of, you know, reducing global emissions by, you know, 10 to 15% over the next decade, but also creating new economic opportunities. So there's uh, been research to suggest that we could create about a trillion dollars of new market opportunities in the next decade. Um, Gaurav, same question to you. I'm curious to hear you talk a little more about how your technology actually works. Yes, yeah, great question. You know, when we first started working on this, um, now about seven years ago, we really spent a lot of time with our partners and supporters doing a deep landscape analysis to understand where the levels for, for disruption really were. And there's a couple of things that we learned. Right? We learned that there was a market that, that, that really cared for local and concrete, but that market cared for a couple of things. It cared for functional equivalents that you can, we can use this new concrete in the same way. It has to cost the same or less as traditional concrete, and it has to offer performance that's equivalent to a superior. Now, when we thought about this, really what we came to understand is that the opportunity was fundamentally really related to taking carbon dioxide right as it was in the flue gas of some sort of an industrial emissions source and being able to utilize it as it is. With that view in mind, what we, what we came up with is two things. And, and you know, I, I offer an analogy to Tolau's cookies. We came up with a new recipe for Tolau's cookies and we came up with a new kind of convection oven to cook them in. And between the combination of sort of a, a, a different formulation, a different chemistry around concrete and, and a really nice convection oven to be able to produce it in, those are sort of the two things that we brought together. 
And I think the reason that, that this turned into a really good idea is, is we realized that we could do it with very much off-the-shelf type of components and ideas. So it didn't require crazy amounts of new engineering, and that, that meant it was scalable and applicable today. I think the, the next point to sort of touch on, we, we were really focused on trying to achieve the highest amount of carbon dioxide utilization for the lowest cost. And this really goes back to you know, Jennifer's previous comment of how do you do this in a large enough way for it to actually make a meaningful difference. Now, you know, I want to point out that the objective here is not to be able to tackle climate change in general, but it's really decarbonize construction. And if you can go after the utilization of carbon dioxide strategically, where you can decarbonize a major sector, obviously that's a big win. The, the last comment to touch on, and which is again something that we really focused on, is to think about this idea of, of what we often think of as circular economy. How do you really look at opportunities for adjacency in, in other industrial sectors, where there are byproducts and waste that are produced in other sectors, besides just construction, to be able to utilize them within construction beneficially? And, and we saw that there was lots of opportunities to sort of bring all of the ingredients together. And, and that's really where the secret sauce really led. For sure. Um, I want to talk about the money a little bit. Uh, this was obviously a cash prize. Um, Jennifer, tell us about how you're using this, this money to push the work forward. Yeah, so when we started the business um, a decade ago, we, we, we set out on a mission. And so for us as a company, our mission is to reduce 500 million tons of CO2 uh, annually by the year 2030. Uh, and so the funds really will go towards accelerating um, that goal. Um, so for us, that means you know, scaling up our existing technologies, uh, you know, expanding geographically, but also continuing uh, to innovate. Uh, because for us, like, we can't have just one solution out there. We need many solutions to address this problem just due to the size. Um, so for us, we'll be putting uh, the majority of the funds into accelerating our pathway to 500 megatons. Um, but we're also thinking a bit creatively about how we can leverage uh, a portion of the winnings to um, you know, make it more about than just carbon care. Um, we're thinking about um, you know, some social equity causes that we're particularly passionate about because uh, of course, you know, climate change and social inequity are, are, are linked. So, um, so that's the plan for now. Great. And Gaurav, how about you? How are you spending that money? Yeah, you know, this is, this is a great question. And you know, we've been really fortunate over the years to have been supported by a phenomenal group of people around the world that's allowed us the flexibility and the freedom to really work in these early state spaces, which are very hard to do otherwise. Um, that being said, you know, we're going to take all of the winnings and sort of use them to continue the mission of the Institute for Carbon Management, which has been really focused on developing market-facing technologies for climate change mitigation. I will point out that, you know, one of the reasons that we've really chosen to take that view is we are a university and we're at a world-class university. And this is really the kind of thing that students are really attracted to. And if we can do anything to sort of continue these opportunities, you know, this is really where we see not simply the next generation of innovators, but also the next generation of leaders really coming from. And we think that's a great investment. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, you talked in the finalist video a little bit about, you know, the legacy of this and, and wanting to make a better world for your kids and their kids and on and on. Um, how do you think about, you know, making this not just a carbon cure pr project, but something that expands to the broader industry and gets us all thinking about this so we're making a much bigger effect? Yeah, I think that's sort of the whole purpose of the XPRIZE uh, model is to uh, incentivize innovation and sort of kickstart new industries. Um, so when we started the competition, uh, you know, five, six years ago, uh, some of these words that we're using today didn't even exist. 
it, you know, the world has, is, has been completely transformed, never mind COVID. Um, so for us, uh, you know, it's, it's a new world and I think uh, the, the future is bright. Yeah. And grow up from the academia side, you know, how do you think about bringing this to as many people, as many companies as possible and, and sort of maximizing the effects of it? Yeah, it's a great question, Megan. So, you know, actually Carbon Build has been spun off into a company uh, which is now looking to really commercialize the technology. Uh, that said, you know, we've brought in a fabulous CEO, Raul Shandere, who's sort of leading the charge on that. But sort of to sort of, you know, take the message a bit further, one of the things that we work very hard to do is as we went through the process of demonstrating the technology in, in Wyoming at the Integrated Test Center, we end up, ended up producing a lot of concrete block and, and concrete block because that's what we chose to produce. And so we've donated that block to, to a group of, of, of entities. You know, UCLA's taken some, some construction on the campus. The, the, uh, the Shoshone tribe has taken some for some construction on the, on the East River Reservation. And so what we're really trying to do with, with all of this is, is really be able to distribute the product out, but really try and sort of show that these are real materials that you can use in real construction. Because we think that really demonstrating that these products are real and they work is a really important part to sort of get market acceptance that there is low carbon concrete solutions and they're available today. Mm -hmm. I, one thing I love about the XPRIZE is how rigorous the testing was. Um, and so I'm curious, I'll start with you, Jennifer. You guys tested in Alberta. Um, how, how were you feeling going into that testing process? What was that experience like? It's such an interesting one of a kind type of experience. Um, I mean, yeah, where to even begin? Uh, so, uh, you know, day one, we sort of set out and we're looking at the competition guidelines and trying to figure out, you know, how do we maximize each variable and design a project around that? Uh, and then, of course, COVID hit. So we had to sort of rejig how we did things. And we're working with a bit of a skeleton crew on site who was working, you know, around the clock. Uh, and, uh, you know, some days it was like minus 20, like really nasty conditions. Um, so it, it was tough. It was tough for sure, um, but the team persevered, and uh, you know we uh, we uh, we won. So it all paid off, I guess, in the end. And what was it like when you were in the middle of the test and you realized, you know, oh, this is going well. We're we're doing what we set out to do. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely highs and lows, and like to be perfectly honest, there were times when you know we're like can we even go on? Like uh, the fact that half our team couldn't even physically go on site was a, was a major challenge. So, um, you know, uh, the winter weather and just trying to alongside all of this, uh, run our business and kind of scale the company up. Uh, it was really tough. So um, I think uh, I'm super proud of the team and all of our partners who helped make this happen. And uh, yeah, it, it was a great experience for sure. And Gaurav, you mentioned that you and your team tested in Wyoming. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience. Yes, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a superb experience, right? We learned an enormous amount from it and, and at a couple of different levels. Um, number one, the first thing that we learned is success has two attributes. It's, number one is good engineering and the other part is luck. Um, I think, you know, there were equal parts of both. As you can imagine, this is not something that, that we or anybody else had done before. And, you know, so you go into it expecting a lot of challenges. And while there were indeed a, a great number of challenges, you know, we were fortunate to have a superb team that was in, not only incredibly resilient, but incredibly talented, that really pulled us together really well. So that, that's the first thing. I, I think, you know, I, I also want to shout out to, to 350 Solutions and the XPRIZE retained to really do all of the measurement and validation and the verification around these processes that did a superb job of sort of thinking about, you know, how should we really think about these processes and what's really the right way to assess, assess and measure them? 
the last thing to point out is, you know, we did our testing at, at the Wyoming Integrated Test Center, and, and the team there was incredibly helpful, right? So this was new not only for them, but it was also new for us. And, and in spite of sort of the newness to everybody involved, we, we were able to really pull this off successfully, you know, keeping in mind all of the things that Jennifer just touched on, skeleton crews, um, whether that was maybe less than ideal. Um, but you know what? Everyone did their part and came together really well. Yeah. Um, Jennifer, you alluded earlier in the conversation to the importance of thinking about carbon capture as a business opportunity and not just something that like good-hearted people work on out of altruism. Um, and you mentioned, you know, being able to turn CO2 into other things, but can you talk a little more broadly about like how this work, you know, the business opportunity of all of this? Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think it really goes back to scalability. Um, you know, you can design a great mousetrap, but if it sits on the shelf and no one uses it, it's kind of useless. Um, and when you think about climate change, like time is not on our side. Um, so we need to do everything we can to, you know, make it as easy for industry to adopt these solutions so that we can scale them as quickly as possible. Um, so for us over the last decade, we've been sort of tweaking the business model, tweaking the equipment, and really try to drive down those barriers so that we can uh, grow as quickly as possible. Um, so for us, it's, you know, things like we don't actually charge any upfront uh, capital cost to install the technology. It can be installed in about a day. And we used to send engineers on planes to install the equipment, but of course with COVID, that's not an option. So now we do everything remotely. So I think, um, you know, the business opportunities, uh, this is proof that it exists. And I think to the extent that um, solutions can, uh, you know, be refined to not only think about the environmental impact, but the economic opportunity, um, then that's when we can really scale these things to have, you know, gigaton impacts. Mm -hmm. And Grav, I'm curious to hear you answer the same question. You know, you've talked a lot about the need for scale um, and making everything cost competitive. And like Jennifer says, you know, it feels like we're sort of in a race against the clock here. Um, so how do you prioritize all those different factors and, and really make sure that this is as scalable as possible? Yeah, so you know, it's a, it's a, it's a great question, Evan. And really, you know, I think in some ways we're fortunate. We're, we're fortunate because we've got a concrete opportunity. The, the interesting thing to sort of keep in mind here, is, and it doesn't matter whether you're carbon built, whether you're carbon cure, anybody else, anyone that's taking carbon dioxide and trying to use it in, in concrete particularly, is turning it into what we call calcium carbonate, in effect seashells. And, and the nice thing about this, and the reason that everyone's doing this, is, is fundamentally chemistry dictates the direction that we're going to go with this. You know, the, the, the transformation of carbon dioxide into calcium carbonate, or seashells, so to speak, is really based on the idea that this is chemically the, the simplest and the most favorable reaction there is. Um, now, this turns into an opportunity because we produce so much concrete around the world that if we can imagine taking carbon dioxide and using it to produce concrete, you're talking about utilizing well over a billion tons, probably on the order of about 2 billion tons annually to be able to simply produce construction materials. Now, against the fact that you know we emit about 35 billion tons of carbon dioxide globally, there's a really significant portion that can get utilized in a, in a construction in the construction sector, which we cannot do without. That's the first comment. And the second comment, which I think sort of, again, leads to this, is, is the production of concrete from CO2 is one of the really few opportunities that exist that is cost effective at scale. And, and you know, against sort of this, these two ideas coming together simultaneously, you know, you see that there's a sweet spot, that, that there's a sweet spot of, of being able to achieve relevant scale 
but also doing this in a in a manner that that is cost effective. And you know, both of these things sort of have to come together to make a difference. The last piece to touch on related to this is, you know, since climate change is so much in the public eye, um, you know, we see that there's sort of, I would say, immediate messaging that's available, immediate sort of consistency that's available, that societally, this is something that we want to try and affect. And when you sort of start to put these pieces together, you realize, and this piece is not just my words, you know, there's, there's, there's a large body of work that, that sort of substantiates this from across the world, that there's motivation to be able to make a difference in the construction sector. Mm-hmm. We have a ton of audience questions, so I want to make sure we get to those. We have about 15 minutes left. Um, the first question is for each of you. I'll start with Jennifer. How did you hear about the competition, the XPRIZE competition, and what made you decide to enter? Uh, I'd have to rewind my memory here to think. Um, I think it was through one of our investors who'd, uh, who'd heard about uh, XPRIZE and the wonderful work they do. And uh, we sort of said, okay, well, this uh, aligns nicely with what we're doing uh, commercially. So uh, we sort of uh, dug into it and uh, it, you know, the timing worked great and we were commercializing this new technology for reclaimed water anyways. Um, so yeah, it, yeah, it worked out uh, really well. And Gaurav, how about you? How did you get involved? Well, so so it's that's an interesting question. But in effect, the XPRIZE Foundation is about five or six miles as the crow flies from where I'm currently located. Um, so it always helps me in the same city as a part of it. But in fact, what had happened at that point is someone that used to work at UCLA had recently gone to work at the XPRIZE Foundation. And in the midst of sort of disseminating information of this new upcoming competition, you know, it came across our desks. And, and since we happened to be working on concrete, we said, well, you know what? We've got very little to lose. Um, let's see if we can make this work. And that's how we decided to mm-hmm. Um, Sarah has a question about um, you know, how you keep going. Uh, she says, carbon capture is a tough area to sustain a business in. What made your team believe in your product and its future growth? Jennifer? Um, so yeah, I mean, also to sort of clarify, so there's, when you think about um, sort of climate solutions, there's carbon capture, and then there's either utilization or sequestration. So you got to capture the CO2, uh, whether it's directly from the air, from plants, or from industrial sources. And then once you capture it, you have to do something with it. And that's where the utilization piece comes into play. So we're a utilization solution. Um, we don't really care where the CO2 comes from. Um, uh, I hope that answers her question. Yeah. Um, Gaurav, I'm curious, the same question for you, like, you know, it's tough. It's a long road. There are a lot of challenges. Like, how do you keep the team going? So great question, Megan. So I think one of the things that distinguishes Carbon Build as compared to anybody else, practically speaking, in the world is we are perhaps the only process that has no need for a CO2 capture step. You know, when we thought about developing the process, we really developed it to bypass a capture step completely. And this is the reason why we can take raw flue gas from any sort of an emission source and directly transform it into concrete. I think, you know, this is really sort of something that we spend a lot of time thinking about and working on. And I think this is one of the things that really allows us to have these super favorable economics that we can start to deliver. That said, however, you know, I think I think really looking to the next question, which is what comes next, we've been really focused on trying to build partnerships with, with concrete producers and emitters around the world who realize that you know, this is not something that they simply want to do because it's important for their business and good for the planet, but also the economics are advantageous. And given the fact that we don't require a capture step really makes this very straightforward to deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we have an interesting question from Pawan, uh, who works at the World Bank. Um, he says, we lend billions of dollars to countries for infrastructure, including concrete. What technical and design specifications are needed that are different from the status quo to ensure that the next $10 billion of our development finance is geared to include solutions like yours? Jennifer, do you want to start? Yeah, so um, I'm glad they brought this question up. Um, so for us, we think about like sort of how we're orga uh, organically growing and then what we can do to accelerate the scale of technologies like ours. And I think this um, private and public sector uh, market demand is a, plays a really critical role. So uh, we've done this over the last decade with uh, on the private sector side where um, you know, building owners and uh, engineers and architects can say, hey, you know, I'm also committed to uh, solving climate change. So I'm gonna specify concrete made with CO2 in my tech campus or my highway or my high rise. And then that's a really great way to um, incentivize the local concrete producers to adopt low carbon technologies. Um, similarly on the policy side, um, there's lots of great examples where um, there's some frameworks which give you know, preferential treatment to, or actually requiring the use of low carbon materials on projects. So I think this is a great example of uh, the power that policy can uh, hold to transforming industries. Mm -hmm. And Gaurav, what do you recommend for the World Bank? Um, you know, so I, I agree with a lot that Jennifer said, but really there are maybe two, two comments that I would make. I, I would argue that, you know, there's no change, no reason to change any of the engineering specifications that we use for concrete that's used in construction today. What we simply want to do is allow flexibility in terms of the fact that we can use alternate cement formulations other than what's known as traditional Portland cement to be able to achieve the same outcome. I think maybe the next thing that goes into this is, you know, in, in construction projects and, you know, particularly public construction projects, everything's conditioned on so-called L1 or the lowest bid. And, you know, I think we need to expand the definition of the bid, not because we want to try and allow for more expensive materials to be used, but we want materials to be evaluated both on the basis of cost and carbon intensity. I think when you start to really do these evaluations on the basis of both cost and carbon intensity, in effect, you start to create a market demand for low carbon products. And I think these two things sort of need to go hand in hand, not simply with public financing, but, but also with public private financing, which is a big part of sort of project executions around the world. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of questions popping up about other industries where similar technologies um, can be applied. Um, Jason says, in what other sectors beyond construction do you see massive win opportunities, meaning opportunities to one, decarbonize, and two, reuse waste carbon to unlock economic opportunities? Jennifer? I mean, I think those are two different things. So every sector needs to decarbonize. So if you just make less or be more efficient or you know switch your fuel source, whatever it is, like drive down what you're producing. Um, but then on the sort of carbon utilization side, it's chemistry tells you what you can and can't do. Um, so you can make fuel, you can make plastics, you can make chemicals, and you can make concrete. Um, and some of those things, I think it's also important to consider permanence as well. So um, if you make fuel from CO2, that's great. But then what happens to that fuel downstream? Does it get burned and the CO2 eventually goes back into the air? So th that would be considered like a temporary storage of CO2. Um, concrete has an advantage in that the mineralization of the CO2 uh, means that it's a permanent removal. So the CO2 will not go back into the air. I think we need both. Like we always advocate for a portfolio approach where, um, you know, in order to meet our climate targets, we need all of the tools in the toolbox. Um, so that's, you know, natural solutions like uh, planting trees, but also engineered solutions like what we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. 
And Gaurav, how about you? Are there other industries where you see this being naturally applicable? Yes, you know, Megan, I, I think fundamentally there's, there's a lot of industries in which we could be using carbon dioxide, right? Whether to produce plastics, whether to produce fine chemicals, whether to produce fuels. I don't think this is an issue of technical viability, right? So it's like I often say, carbon dioxide is not a technical challenge, it's really an economic challenge. And so the challenge here is not really conditional around what else you could make. The question is, what else could you make cost effectively? And I think that's really where this becomes a very hard problem because to be able to sort of meet the, the cost criteria around the incumbents becomes really hard. And I think this is really where, you know, concrete sort of sets itself about and, and, and apart from everyone else that you can sort of achieve favorable economics today. I think the next part, which I think is also important is, you know, lots of the capital facilities that you would need in some of these other sectors are much more expensive to stand up. And, and you know, I think when you start to think about the fact that you've got higher production costs, plus you need perhaps updated or revised or perhaps even new facilities, the economics kept up. And so, you know, it's, it's not really a question of what you could do, but it's a question of what could you do at the right price. Mm -hmm. There are a whole bunch of questions uh, wanting us to get into harder numbers. Um, so yeah, the, Connor asks, how many gigatons of CO2 will your technology sequester from now until 2050? And then Roland says, I'd like to know the CO2 remaining footprint of the new concrete making technologies and how much less it is compared to standard concrete. Okay, I think I understand. Um, so uh, Jennifer, you wanna talk some hard numbers for us? Yeah, I think uh, the easiest number, well, the short answer is depends. Um, uh, so, but I think the easiest number to quote would be around uh, our mission. So this, uh, we've mapped out a, a roadmap um, using our portfolio of solutions, uh, many of which are already commercialized, but some of which are still in development. And uh, we're at about in about 300 plants today. There's about 100,000 on Earth, so you can scale that up and run the numbers. Um, but then our, we have a sort of a 10-year window here uh, between now and 2030 where we're executing on our plans to achieve this 500 million tons of CO2 reduced annually in 2030. And so this year we'll reduce about 100,000 tons um, so we're a long way from our 500 megatons, but like I said, we've been quite transparent in how we plan to get there. So we would point your, um, the question to um, uh, our website where you can dig into all the numbers. Mm -hmm. And Gaurav, how about you? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think, I think this is exactly the kind of question that should be asked. So when we started working on, on the technology that, that, that Carbon Build is now in the midst of commercializing, we had a really simple goal. We wanted to achieve a minimum of a 50% reduction on a per unit basis as compared to traditional concrete today. And so, you know, as an example, the, the products that we ended up producing as a part of the as a part of the competition basically show a reduction of between 50 and 70% as compared to a traditional concrete block. This is something that we thought was really important. And you know, we think these numbers are important for a variety of reasons. So while we expand our product portfolio into other kinds of construction components, you know, you can take the simple example of a block. By 2027, we'll produce about a trillion units of block around the world. And if you think about what just that means, that every single one of those units of concrete block were produced using carbon bills reversal technology, you're talking about a reduction of about 350 million tons of CO2 that just comes from block alone. And so the, the point that really make with this is when you start to think about A, the unit economics and the unit carbon intensity of single components and start to scale them across a really big sector, there's really big savings that emerge. But I think what it really requires is I think this type of question being asked because we want transparency around the unit reductions that you deliver on a single component. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the XPRIZE is obviously a multi-year process. Um, and as a journalist, it warms my heart that so many people are asking about the process and the experience of it for each of you. So um, Frederick says, um, over the last two years with the XPRIZE, what was the hardest challenge you face? And have you solved it and how, or are you still working on it? Jennifer? Uh, I mean, when you think about challenges, so we've been uh, you know, in business for 10 years, every day is a new challenge. Uh, you know, in the early days, it was sort of how do we uh, understand the fundamental science and get the ideas out of the lab and into the real world. And then it was, you know, how do we um, uh, tweak the engineering so that it works in a variety of industrial settings? And then it was, you know, how do we refine the business model uh, to make the to reduce those barriers for adoption? And then now we're switching gears and thinking forward around scaling. How do we scale as quickly as possible? So I think. Uh, every day is a new set of challenges, uh, at least on the competition, it was mostly around one, like maximizing our score. So doing everything we can to ensure that we have the best chance of winning. Um, two, just COVID, it was really difficult um, to operate um, uh, with a skeleton crew. So that was a challenge and weather. Uh, I'm telling you, like you, there was, when there's water involved and it's minus 20, like our, our team was cold and they were dirty and, they put in some long hours, so new challenges every day for sure. But that's what—that's where the sort of magic happens, and we can come up with these creative solutions. Mm -hmm. And Gaurav, how about how about for you? What were the big challenges? You know, it's a it's a great question. I'll, I'll sort of put this into a couple of different buckets, but really, I would sum this up as a learning experience. It was a learning experience for us as individuals because it really taught us humility. Um, you know, it's only when you really do things and try and sort of take them out of what I'd say is a classic extremely well-defined, well-controlled setting in a laboratory and turn them into a real-life process, do you really understand how hard it is? So, you know, we, we, we really sort of learned a lot there. The next point to think about, you know, and I think this is really something, sort of my message to innovators around the world, is it's great to have laboratory realizations, but sort of thinking about the pathway of taking laboratory successes into processes that work at large scale is sort of a whole different experience altogether. As a little anecdotal experience, when we started this work, we were producing a thimble full of material in a research lab. Um, when we did these demonstrations in Wyoming, we were processing about 600 pounds of CO2, producing about 10 to 15 metric tons of product. When you think about sort of the scale difference that's involved with this, it's enormous. Um, and then the last thing to point out, and you know, I think I think I sort of really um, handed to the X Prize for making us do this, is to really think about you know. If you had to take interesting ideas and translate them, how would you? And I think what the X Prize has really done is it forced us to think about work that we were doing in a more practical and a more commercial way, which you know I think really sort of stretches the bounds of, of how you think about differences, you know, versus writing really nice scientific peer-reviewed articles versus building processes that work in the world. And I think this is this is really an important part of the experience when you think about the fact that you know we we are a university team. Because it really lets us think differently about you know, our mission and how we really think about technology translation and really what's needed to make a difference in what I'd say are these deep science spaces. Mm -hmm. We just have about 90 seconds left and this is far too big of a question for 90 seconds, but we're gonna try. Um, Sean says, what do you think is the next long-term holy grail for, for this research and deployment? Jennifer, what do you think? What's the next big frontier? Oh, that's a loaded question. Well, I mean, there's another X Prize just around the corner. Uh, Elon Musk uh, contributed 100 million to carbon removal, so that's an easy answer. Yeah, um, Gaurav, what do you think? 
you know, I think the biggest thing with, with, with carbon management in general is about success stories. We don't have a whole lot of success stories. And I think really, if we want to motivate ourselves societally and otherwise, we really need to get points up on the board. And so I think anything that we can do to sort of take the solutions that we have right now and scale them really, really fast without sort of thinking about the traditional metrics around return on capital or return on investment is, I think, really what this takes we move forward. You know, it's great to make money, but making a difference and making money is even better than making just money. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think ending on a challenge is a, is a great note. Um, so thank you all for coming. Congratulations, Jennifer and Gaurav. Um, it's been really fun to talk to you about this. And um, yeah, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Thanks for listening to this Future Positive podcast. If you'd like to support our show, share this episode with fellow futurist friends. And remember to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Your feedback really does help. If you want to find out more about the legacy of the $20 million NRG COSIA Carbon X Prize or learn about our new competition, X Prize Carbon Removal, then head over to xprize.org. This podcast comes from XPRIZE, a global future positive movement of over 1 million people and rising, delivering radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Sign up to join us and support the movement that is making a change in the world 10 times faster. Whether it's lending a hand, a dollar, or an idea, we all have a role to play in making the future a better place. The only way to get the future we want is to create it ourselves. Learn more at xprize.org. See you next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.